Gresham College presents Seeing Through the Lies, Innovation and the Need for Transparency by Professor Martin Elliott. You've been reading this quote from Richard Feynman. You see why um, it's up there as we go through this talk because I wanted to talk to you about um, seeing through the lies and how we need to change our behaviour as doctors and as scientists to um, give you, as the public, more truth. And the ideas that uh, I'm discussing here, I first uh, talked about at the Robert Gross lecture in Boston earlier this year and then evolved a bit further in Lisbon and and as a TED talk. Now, um, the reason I wanted to talk about it is that although the vast majority of doctors behave badly, every now and again you find some people who have lost or lose their moral compass. And I will remind you that the reason that most of us are doctors is to um, get really good clinical outcomes, be effective, to make it safe for the patient, and hopefully to give them a good experience during treatment. And to do that, we have to tell the truth to the patient, to each other, um, and to you as the public. Otherwise, there's no trust. And trust is the basis on which all relationships in medicine are built. And as I've said once before in uh, this hall, uh, we haven't done very well at that. We've let the trust of the population down on many occasions from our history of being involved in torture um, through to very terrible experiments carried out during the Second World War. And as Roy Porter uh, pointed out, throughout the history of medicine, and particularly since the 18th century, Uh, There have been many charlatans who've traded on the idea of hope by peddling stuff which doesn't really work. And I want to point out to you that our times aren't fundamentally any any better, really. Um, You'd thought that over centuries we'd been able to weed out these people who were bullshitting their way through medical life. But some of you will remember uh, Andrew Wakefield, who was a gastroenterologist, who... um, identified, he thought, a link between um, inflammatory bowel disease and autism. Uh, And he was exposed by the Sunday Times um, essentially for being fraudulent, not only about how his research was funded, it was funded by a a legal company, and um, fraudulent about the results. And he had to retract the paper which was published in The Lancet, and it became a cause celebre Uh, for quite a long time, but he hasn't given up. This year, he um, directed a film which was um, entered into the Tribeca Film Festival, uh, and um, it's astonishing, really, that someone who's reduced the vaccination rates around the world, increased the mortality from measles, used bad and fraudulent science and wrong data, could end up still um, carrying it out and running websites in the United States and making a film which actually got panned by the critics and was withdrawn from the festival. There were others, doctors over the last 20 or 30 years, who have lied about their data. John Darcy, who was in a cardiovascular lab, um, falsified the data in at least five papers, and Harvard eventually retracted them and and had to pay back all the grant money they got, hundreds of thousands of dollars, Uh, back to the um, NIH in the United States. Um, Browning also committed fraud by lying about his data, reporting results of drug therapy. We actually made up the results. A stem cell scientist in Korea claimed to have made 11 patient-specific stem cell lines in the hope that he could clone organs, or humans in fact, and all of his data were fabricated, most of it at least, and probably all of it. Interestingly, he's now working with a big Chinese company cloning cows. Um, Scott Rubin made up the data in 21 trials. It just didn't get done, and then the data were published. He was so good at it, he was described as a medical Madoff. Do you remember Madoff from the the banking crises? Um, And that name will crop up again shortly. Bolt was looking at giving alternatives to blood during anaesthesia. 
10 out of 91 papers completely made up data. And Stapel, who is a social psychologist, claimed to have published work based on questionnaires when he'd never actually given the questionnaires to the patient. And the biggest of all was um, Yoshitaki Fuji, who's probably the most prolific fraudster. Over 19 years, all of the data in his 183 papers was um, proven to be created. Well, I'm a surgeon, so it's self-evident. I want to have a look and see what happened to surgery. And I, I um, found this paper from King in, in Boston, looking at the number of papers that have been pulled out of surgical journals, retracted uh, in that time period, 186 papers in a variety of specialties and from all over the world, dominated by the United States and Germany. Now, um, icebergs have tips, and these were the ones where um, the people had actually withdrawn the data, the authors had withdrawn the data because they'd been spotted, found out, or owned up. Um, but what really was striking about this is that uh, this was about duplication of data, falsified data, data errors, or stolen data. It's all about the data in the end. And what, what is very striking to me about these fraudsters is that it's the data that they're manipulating to make their lies work. We, I'm not, at the moment, going to discuss their motivations for doing it, but that'll emerge. What I thought I'd do is to, and what really prompted me to give this talk tonight is a single story, as it often is, about my association with someone who turns out not to have been what we thought. I want to introduce you to a patient of mine called Kieran and his fantastic mother, Colleen. Kieran has always been in the first 10 of anything that's ever happened to him in the course of his life. He was born with a long-segment congenital tracheal stenosis, so his trachea um, is much narrower than it should be. If you cut it across the middle, his trachea was only one millimetre across in the middle. And it's a rare disease. Um, we only see up to 15, usually around 10 of these in the UK per year. So treatment has always, in a sense, been experimental. When he was born, he couldn't breathe at all. He was in another hospital, and they put him on something called ECMO, um, which is uh, connecting him to a bypass machine by the bedside through these cannulae. And you can see the cannulae in his neck vessels in his chest, and that the fact that his lungs have no air in them. And he stayed on that until he was transferred to us, and I then patched the front of his trachea, like putting a gusset in a pair of trousers. And using pericardium, which is a membrane that surrounds the heart, uh, which is thin, and unfortunately, it's very easy to use and very easy to find, but it shrinks and it scars and it blocks. And um, that's what happened to him. And at three months of age, he had a metal stent put into his trachea, and he was one of the first 10 children in the world to have a metal stent put into his airway. And he did fine for a while. Three years of age, that stent, um, which is now sitting in his airway, was resting behind the aorta, and it eroded through into the aorta, and he bled acutely one Friday and I had to take him to the operating theatre to replace the front of his trachea. And we used this, which is called homograft. It's donor human trachea, which is essentially pickled. And he was one of the first two children in the world at that stage to have uh, such a graft inserted into his uh, chest. Um, and we went on to do, around the world, 33 children with this technique, of whom... Uh, at 12 years, 65% or so were, were alive. And that was done largely with Jeff Jacobs and his partner, Jim Quintessence, who's sitting in the audience at the front, and Klaus Herberholt from Bonn. Jeff was working in St. Petersburg. Twelve years later, his stent, which he'd had put back into his trachea, a new one, eroded into the aorta once again. And astonishingly, his amazing mother resuscitated him once more. But because of the BSE crisis, the mad cow disease, this homograft that we'd used before was no longer available for legislative reasons. And so we had to think of another way of treating him. 
He was sedated in a hospital so that he didn't bleed. In the um, November of the year before we operated on him, Claudio Castillo in Barcelona had a, um, a little area of TB, old TB scarring in her airway, replaced with a stem cell supported tracheal transplant. And in those transplants, you take a donor, you strip the donor cells off by, with detergents and enzymes until you're left with a, uh, a skeleton of collagen and uh, stimulate the stem cells of the recipient and marinate the graft in stem cells and then put the transplant into the patient and hope that they grow into a trachea, which is her rather than the donor. And um, in that graft, uh, sorry, in that operation, and in, was the lead was Paolo Macchirini. And so, um, and other people in that group had worked in Bristol and UCL, um, Hanover, Florence, and Barcelona. It was an international group trying to grow human tracheas in the lab. So we um, knew many of these people. We were working with them. And so we invited um, Paolo to come and help us operate on Kirin. And this is what we did in March of 2010. This is Paolo Macchirini. And this is the stem cell-supported donor graft. It was a donor from Italy with all the donor cells removed from it. And um, he, uh, Kieran had this seven-centimetre length of trachea transplanted into him with no blood supply. Um, and he was, the first of, he was the first patient in the world to have one, first child in the world to have this. And he was the first of ten patients to have an absorbable airway stent so that it wouldn't later on erode into a blood vessel. He had a stormy post-operative course, but eventually um, went home. And two years later, found himself um, on the pages of a GCE textbook just under Barack Obama as the first successful stem cell transplant, organ transplant. He was invited to meet the Pope and uh, Nobel Prize winners in stem cell biology. He was, um, it was fantastic. It was great publicity for us. And we were really excited that he'd lived and that his graft had survived. He was made the Irish child of courage in 2012 and was able to get back to, uh, for him, a pretty normal way of life. His drumming's much better than my photography, by the way. But he um, has continued to uh, do remarkably well. It was an expensive business. We spent a quarter of a million pounds in the first year. But since that time, he's now six years out, um, the cost is almost zero. And he's uh, grown to full adult size. He has a, a quality of life which is superior to a heart transplant. And he's on no drugs. He's on no anti-rejection therapy, which is you know, fantastic. That was the idea behind doing the graph. I actually... Um, I think I should probably show you now these cilia, which is the epithelial cells lining the airway and a biopsy taken earlier this year at real speed and in slow motion. So he has lining his airway that we have transplanted normal respiratory epithelium. His airway hasn't grown. It's not increased in width and I have no idea whether these have anything to do with the stem cells or have just grown in from each end. We, ha we haven't got techniques which do that could just be um, the support mechanism that has made cells grow. But anyway, it's working well enough for him. Now, you can't do this job because getting donors, as for any transplant system, is, is never going to work. We will never have enough donors to meet demand. And so one of the earliest things we did in the lab with UCL, and a lab led by a chap called Alex Cephalian at the time, was to generate some nanotechnology-derived electrospun plastic um, which looked like a trachea and which could be put in a bioreactor with stem cells, hoping that you would be able to use the plastic as a skeleton. And um, it didn't work very well, but it could do, potentially. In the meantime, Paolo Macchirini had moved from uh, Barcelona 
to the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, which is rather smart, well, interesting building anyway. Um, and uh, he, um, very charismatic guy, here's the graphs. Now, they didn't come from London. These were being made by a company uh, called, um, I think, Harvard Medical, certainly in Boston. Um, and he got several grants um, from Karolinska, but also from Russia, which is pretty unusual in science to get big grants from Russia. And um, he's an extremely charismatic man. Now, um, things started to um, alarm the community. First of all, he was accused of some dodgy financial dealing over private patients in Italy and for a short period of time was put under house arrest. He had issues that were being talked about, about how he got consent for these patients in different centres in Russia, particularly, where he was travelling peripatetically to operate. And the community of uh, surgeons that were dealing with tracheal transplants didn't actually believe the data that was coming out of there, um, and there was doubt about whether the outcomes were real or not. And then things really started to get interesting um, in a lovely way, because there was a sex, lies, and videotape that eventually um, essentially brought him down. Uh, Clearly, I need to tell you some of that story. We'll start with sex. In um, January of this year, a wonderful article was published in Vanity Fair. Now, as I said, he's incredibly charismatic, very good-looking, very charming, and uh, documentary crews were very much drawn to travelling him around. Here's this miraculous surgeon who could go around replacing people's tracheas in lots of countries a kind of Pied Piper, um, drawing uh, researchers along with him, patients along with him. And he went off um, following a German documentary queue, company which was following him around, um, to be invited by NBC News um, to have um, a documentary made about him in America. And he was flown over to the Mandarin Oriental in Boston, a very nice hotel, and met Benita Alexander, who was the producer, a very famous producer in America. Things went quite well um, between them, and he um, then managed to travel around Europe over the next year or so. And ultimately, um, their relationship moved from travel to blossomed, and eventually he proposed to her. And he um, had uh, apparently operated on Putin, um, the Clintons, uh, the Pope, and um, Andrea Bocelli. And he um, managed to persuade the Pope to let them get married in Castel Goldolfo, the um, summer palace. Fantastic idea. Um, and um, invitations to the wedding were sent out, some of which were clearly impressive. It was a great cast list turning up for this wedding. Uh, um, rather sadly for... Um, Benita at least, her friend pointed out that when the Pope, who by now agreed to officiate at the wedding, um, was going to do it in the autumn of that year, he was due to be touring South America, which even in the land of quantum theory is quite a challenge. <laughs> so here he is um, marrying someone who uh, doesn't really um, have a full, his, her full credibility now. She's really hurt and upset and it's a disaster. He had told a total pack of lies to her. But from a scientific point of view, rumours start to emerge um, and started flying around the scientific community like a fly. Rumours that the patients that he was operating on in Russia not only were doing badly with results that were different from the papers that he was publishing and reporting, but actually some were dying. And these plastic graphs were maybe not supporting um, cells at all. One of the cheerleaders for the sort of campaign that said that all of this was a load of rubbish is a very um, nice surgeon in Leuven in Belgium called Pierre Delaire who, who was proposing a completely other way of doing tracheal transplants by placing the trachea of a donor in the forearm 
and then inducing tolerance in the recipient so that you could then later transplant it from the arm to the chest with a bit of mouth mucosa to line it. He said publicly that Macchiarini was a fraud and a nutcase and that um, anybody doing stem cell biology was roughly the same, a bit of a magician. There wasn't any decent science behind it. He sometimes used slightly stronger language than that. And and, um, those of us who were still interested in trying to use uh, regenerative medicine, stem cell biology, to build organs, and particularly the trachea, thought the only way to deal with this was to get everybody in a room, everybody who was um, doing this kind of science. And we we organized a meeting in Paris in 2014 um, and invited Paolo Macchiarini, who refused to come, and Pierre Delaire, who came under duress. Um, and wouldn't sign the consensus paper at the end, uh, which was really a long list of questions we didn't know the answers to. For instance, do the stem cells actually change into ciliated epithelium? Are they really surviving? Is it something else that's happening? That We didn't feel that the science had kept up with our compassionate need that we used in Kieran and that we needed to go back to the lab and do more stuff. Which brings us to the videotape. So as I said, he was... Charismatic, and there was a German documentary crew following him around who thought, and to some extent, still think that he's wonderful. But there was also a fantastic Swedish documentary um, maker called uh, Bo Lindquist, who has a really interesting documentary style of questioning. He's very Swedish, very low key, very unchallenging, but you can tell when you watch him that he can um, make you say things you perhaps don't want to say. And he managed to follow um, Macchiarini around for quite a long time. And it was recently shown, um, a three, he produced a three-hour-long documentary which was shown on primetime Swedish television and was recently shown here as Fatal Experiments on BBC4. You can still see it, I think, online. It's very well made. Now, um, what Bo found was that... Um, the data that he went right back to the data associated with these patients in the notes, uh, tried to find the pathology reports, tried to find the histology reports, tried to find the microbiology reports, looked at the bronchoscopies to see if these plastic tracheas were actually covering with human tissue, with normal lining tissue like you saw in Kieran, um, or whether they weren't. Because what um, Macchiarini was saying was that they were. So this is the um, this clip is now from that documentary. I've taken off the Swedish voice, but um, in the papers, um, Macchiarini had described in his papers that the, uh, uh, within eight months the lining was completely covered with um, cells, with blood vessels had developed. There was a, a wonderful mucosa, and for those of us in the field, you know this is going to be pink and shiny and looking beautiful. And all his papers kept repeating this about his patients and certainly when he spoke at international meetings that was he was telling us but he could find nothing in the labs when he went back that would indicate that this was the case and it really came home to me in this video footage which remember was going out on primetime tv on swedish television that this um, is the um, airway in a moment which not only um, uh, had stents in which were unreported, but there isn't any sign of pink mucosa on this graft. None of it. None of this was mentioned in the paper, which actually was saying something completely opposite. And it also turned out to have a hole between the inside and the outside at the lower end of fistula. No mucosa, no revascularization, a fistula and a stent, which weren't in the paper. And um, this was really the final straw for um, the Karolinska community. And this was what was written about um, Macchiarini in that Vanity Fair article by the Director of Law and Psychiatry at Mass General. He's an extreme form of con man. And they said, how does he compare with Madoff, if you remember, like the other guy that we talked about? Um, He wasn't an ordinary con man. He, didn't, didn't, he never claimed to be chairman for Fed, did Madoff. Um, but this guy, 
Macchiarini is really good. So here we have a man with great charm, great charisma, clearly lying about his results. The scientific community that he was part of suspected it. He had got in a terrible emotional mess with this uh, poor girl from the documentary company, and there were consequences. Um, my colleague, Martin Birchall, who we did the operating with at the time, um, describes him quite well. And with the benefit of the hindsight and with the benefit of what's been published about him subsequently, um, one might pigeonhole his behaviour as narcissism and narcissistic in that I think he always had a great sense that he was um, uh, better than, than others in a variety of ways, surgically, intellectually and in his vision for what was right. But this eventually started to take over his behaviour in almost every aspect and, and that he firmly believed that everything he was going to do was going to work out okay um, and that he should take credit for being this a, a brilliant messiah for this new world of, of synthetic tissue engineering. There was quite significant collateral damage. He was fired from Karolinska where he was professor of surgery there were multiple investigations on site in Karolinska and here in London and in Hanover and Barcelona, every team that he'd bumped into. In Karolinska, there were resignations of the um, senior leaders of the university and of the Department of Surgery. And maybe more importantly for science, a loss of credibility in the stem cell science itself. Everybody got, found it difficult to get grants. And the people who were vaguely associated but had absolutely nothing to do with him became very angry. You said earlier on you were angry. Yeah. How, how has this whole thing um, affected your life? Well, it's, it's very interesting because uh, there are about uh, 35 people in my lab at the moment. And, uh, and the first uh, uh, thing I heard from the postdoc... Uh, they are working on these, and so they, they were um, really pissed off <laughs> with the fact that uh, uh, they saw what they've been working for five, ten years, and, the, and their passion and all their future and all what they believe to be useful one day for patients may be uh, destroyed by the fact that things are not being done properly by things not being done properly. Um, and Martin also felt that he'd been used. I was very useful. I, I felt more that I was useful to him than actually a true collaborator or a friend. And if you're doing science, especially across teams, being a collaborator is all about that trust I spoke about at the beginning. When it starts to break down, you can see instantly um, the subtlety of the anger and the fury that creeps into the science. Well, surely someone like this is a one-off. Uh, unfortunately, doctors have a rather peculiar view of the world. And we have, to dis we have to own up to the fact that some doctors do lie. There's no difference in the distribution of lying in doctors as the rest of the population. And there's been um, quite a lot of study about it, but this one struck me quite clearly. Um, just using self-reporting of lying of, uh, of a thousand Americans... 60% of people say they hadn't told any lies those day, that day. And it turned out that half the lies had been told by only 5% of the subjects being questioned. And therefore, there are some prolific liars. And if you think about how that might impact medicine, it's our responsibility to produce unbiased, accurate representation of the research that we do. So if we've got people who are prone to lying, the system somehow has to protect you and each other from delivering that. Ben Goldeck has quite simply put this, that the bread and butter of good medicine is audit and accountability. That's how you get good science. And I must say that I feel some significant shame over this. I feel shame because it's clearly poor use of data at the very least. I feel shame because the data associated with these studies were actually retained and, in a sense, owned by Paolo Macchiarini. 
They had to be dug out by uh, documentary makers. I feel shame because the journals have published this with a positive publication bias because it seemed exciting. And I feel shame that we can't get at any of that data now. It's all hidden away, although obviously because of the legal proceedings, people have started to find the truth. That doesn't happen many times. What I want to propose in the second half of this talk is that our current system for publishing medical research is out of date and not fit for purpose. So it's a bit of a radical statement, especially when there's an ex-editor of a journal in the front row. Um, but I believe that what we're doing at the moment conspires against proper accumulation, sharing, and analysis of data, and in the context of somebody like Macchiarini, facilitates fraud. And I'll try and explain why. So if I do some research, or if I think of a new procedure, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, I want to publish it in one of the more than 11,000 medical journals that exist. They send it out for peer review, and if you're lucky to sneak through this, the editor likes it, the journal wants it, the peer reviewers think it's worth it, it gets published. And as it gets published, my publications stack up. I get brownie points for having a stack of publications. I get brownie points based on the impact factor of the journal, which is how many times papers published by that journal uh, in, the pre in the preceding two years divided by the number of publications that the journal published. That's the impact factor. And the number of times that my individual paper was cited by other workers. So I've got two things which add up to a brownie point, And a third one, especially in surgery, which is the weight of my papers, how big my stack of papers is. And they matter because without the brownie points, I don't get any academic promotion. I don't really have much street cred in a, a reasonable hospital. And I don't get any research grants because they're measured on impact factor and citation index of my publications. So how the hell do I get money if I don't have these things? The journals make shed loads of money. There are basically three to five major publishers of medical journals. And they have this wrapped up because if, if I don't publish... I don't get brownie points. And so they have a little cycle of productivity which supports this whole industry of my brownie points. The university is using these to make me survive. And I think any, if there are any surgeons in the audience, they'll certainly recognise the idea that the more you have, the better you are in the context of publications. Now, um, Richard Smith, the former editor of the BMJ, on his blog says um, the journals going to struggle to keep these profit margins going, but there's nothing reason why they wouldn't want to because universities and others continue to use this brownie point system that I've just been talking about as a means of judging my academic performance. It's maybe not the best way forward. I think, and certainly in surgery at the moment, we live in a publish or be damned world. You certainly won't get a good job um, unless you've got some track record of publication, almost no matter how good a surgeon you are. Now, it's a bit hard to have this argument without um, taking it on a little further. So um, imagine I invent a new operation. I'm going to be quite vain and call it the Elliott operation. And um, there is a law which came up in 1987 by um, Martin Buxton talking about uh, transplantation at the time. He says, always too early for rigorous evaluation until suddenly it's too late. In other words, you really need to start looking at what your innovation is right at the beginning. Um, and he was saying that you just need to monitor it, essentially. Um, Jane Blaisby, who's professor of surgery in Bristol, says, well, that's a weak argument. What you really need to do is to randomise from your first patient. And actually, I, I kind of agree with her. But funding that kind of research is extremely challenging. And well, we'll maybe, if we have time at the end, discuss that. So here's my operation. Um, if I, I've been thinking about it for five or ten years, so when I actually get to do it, I kind of know a lot of the steps inherently. I've, I've thought about it. I've spoken to the, lots of people in my hospital. And when we do it, it's kind of an organised thing. It happens, and um, usually you get good results, actually, and you think the outcome's good. So I'm going to say 10 operations and 10 survivors. We'll just use death as the outcome measure. I now want to send this to the journal. 
Um, I want to send it to the journal because it's, I'm really excited by this. It's a new thing, and um, I'm hoping that the journal is going to agree. The editor of the journal, if they think it's new and exciting, will send it out for peer review, and if the peer reviewers like it, it'll get published. Now, if you believe that um, it's in the interest of the journals to publish and publish new stuff, it's new, it's positive, and it may well attract readers. So that's, that's business. Um, but peer review has suffered um, extensive criticism, not only from Richard Smith, but also from a whole variety of others. Um, and uh, Fiona Godley did some work from the BMJ m many years ago, sending out uh, papers to, for peer review, which none of the peer reviewers spotted the errors in the papers that were sent out. As a reviewer, I know how difficult it is to concentrate well enough to look at the data that you're seeing to really give a critical review. And a paper that I send to a journal is not the raw data. It's a kind of summary and a narrative, a little story that I dress up to make it attractive to the journal, knowing the style they like. I don't send them stacks of information that other people can analyse. I send them a histogram or a bar chart or a little table. It's not the whole truth. It's a little bit of the truth through my lens. And it takes a pretty smart editor and a pretty smart peer reviewer sometimes to be able to spot all the errors that exist. It's all about the data, once again. We don't get the data right, and the data aren't um, uh, visibly correct. Then it's difficult to see how that's going to make uh, certain waves that we would want them to. Let me explain that again. So if I think, I'm thinking about my operation now, and I start to collect a pile of information about those patients. I will have conventionally made up a spreadsheet of all the things I think I should know about the patients I operate on. I've, I've made it locally. I've personally designed it, maybe with one or two others. And I hold it on a USB stick or on my laptop. It's an in-house design. And I've got commitment bias because I think it's going to work. I've got a significant conflict of interest because it's going to make me famous, give me air miles. And I don't know, because I've not really asked anybody except my close mates, whether this is comprehensive or not. And what gets sent to the journal is, as I've said, a summary. The raw data, that is every single data point for every single patient stay at home. And I think that reflects our competitive environment. I have to have a big stack of paper, bigger than other people, to make my career work. It's not collaborative. It makes you ask, who should own these data? The data that are associated with my first 10 patients are inherently owned by me. It's not, maybe not owned is the right word. It's, it's controlled or have access to. And um, ownership in this context is difficult. But the data are fundamentally mine if I've produced it. And I have lots of motivations for why I might want to keep those data to support my operative theory. I want to stuff the other surgeons at the Brompton. Um, I want to be the first to publish it, and uh, I want to be better than everybody else. Now, the worry I have is that I've now got my paper published. My 10, paper, 10 patients are in the literature. The Elliott operation works. I've travelled around the world, and I've told everybody how fantastic it is. And so uh, other people want to have a go at this because it's going to cure lots of children. Um, and the, so more operations are done at another site. But because they didn't have the benefit of all that thinking about it in advance, and because I only published a summary of what to do in the paper, and because most people are too proud to ring you up and ask you how you actually did it, the outcomes would be worse. And there are lots of examples in my world of cardiac surgery of people copying operations where the next wave, the second wave, particularly things like the Nord or the Nikaido, where the second wave of surgery results were poor. They don't want to send them to the journal at that point because they don't want to seem to be worse than the person who did the operation first. And the journal probably doesn't want to publish it anyway because it's got negative results. So we've got these guys who are con convinced they would like to do it, but their vanity doesn't let them do it, and their academic survival may depend on publishing good results, not bad results. The journal just says no because it's not new anymore, and these results are bad. And the peer reviewers are never asked what they think about it. 
It's never published. And most importantly of all, the data associated with all those patients who've committed themselves to be part of an experiment, if you like, are lost. So we have in the literature 10 survivors. And you might have hundreds of patients from all over the world who never make it to the journal. So people for years, decades, could still be reading about how wonderful my operation is, even though there are millions of people around the world, thousands of people around the world, who have suffered from it. Without those data being accessible, how do we know that this is truth? Now, Jane Blaisby would argue that we should have randomised anyway and all the patients would be part of a proper trial, and I agree with her. If we could do that in the ideal world, that would be fantastic. But funding randomised trials is really hard. There have been two decent randomised trials in paediatric cardiac surgery in my time. They both cost over $15 million. They both ended in equipoise, and they were both overtaken by events in five years. So they, it's not necessarily the perfect solution to research questions, especially in complex um, issues. So I'm going to put forward what essentially is a simple idea, but of course becomes more complex with the detail. Firstly, I, do, I think peer review is taking place at the wrong time. I, I accept that my peers are suitably critical. But what really matters is the data that I'm collecting on the patients and the method, of course, that I'm using to do the operation. So that stuff, the data set and data standards that I associate with that individual patient should be put out for peer review before I start filling in the spreadsheet. And those data sets should be well designed. They should address Porter's value equation by which, uh, for those of you who haven't heard it before, it's that value to the patient equals outcome divided by cost, outcome over life, cost over life, not just 10-day mortality. They should be open to review and criticism and can claim, contain clear data definitions. The data need to be held securely but be publicly accessible and certainly to the whole scientific community and have APIs on the edge of the database which allow them to link up to other data systems if required. Now, that allows you to have a, a public place where this can be debated before you start doing your operation and filling in the pieces. The reason for this was well stated by um, a famous British statistician. Um, if you, if you, <laughs> I think it's quite clear. I won't read it out. Now, we're not alone, or I'm not alone in thinking this, um, reference data sets are, are cle clearly critical to good research. And I, I just want to take you through this a little bit more to explain it carefully. So we have my innovative procedure, and I want to make sure that all patients who have that procedure have their outcome, adverse events, long-term outcomes, and the cost recorded. Costs in all its terms. I think the data that come from that should not be held on my USB stick or on my laptop. They should be held by an honest broker. Now, the honest broker could be part of the National Health Service. It could be behind a firewall. It could be some independently trusted commercial organization. It could be a royal college. It could be a journal. But whatever it is, the data associated with it need to be made available to those who need to see it. That's the regulators, the trusts, the hospitals... Other people, for example, you in the audience who are scientists and want to analyse it, and of course the patients who've taken part, they need to be able to trust us that the data are clear, otherwise there won't be any transparency. If you can make that intellectual step, then the next part is relatively straightforward. Nobody doing this operation, me, doing the first set, should be allowed to do it without contracting to deliver a validated data set to that honest broker who can then distribute the data as appropriate. Part five is my Stalinist proposal. No patient should be allowed to have the, have the operation unless they agree to use their data in this way. Now, after care.data and all of the other feelings in the NHS about privacy of data, this may seem a bit of a shock. But actually, if you randomise patients in randomised trials... Or if you put patients' data into registries, we have to get consent from them for the use of the data. In nearly a million patients in the European and American cardiac surgery registers, 
we haven't yet had a single refusal of anybody wanting to not put their data into it. And I think this fits in with a concept of the public donation of data, which is data for the public good. And it's an idea uh, which I heard presented uh, just a couple of weeks ago by uh, Sir Julian Legrand, who's Professor of Economics at LSE. And he based his work, his idea, on the work of Richard Titmus, who wrote The Gift Donation in 1970, when he'd been asked by the government to look at the market for blood, donor blood. And he said, it's, it's rubbish. You know, the, the public good is more important here. The market is a bad thing. What you need to be able to do is trust the public because they want to give blood. And, of course, it became cheaper and is part of our native altruism now. I think his idea of public donation of data for the public good fits in well into this model and is appropriate. So now I have got my 10 operations, and everybody else who does this operation afterwards um, is also submitting their data to the same data set, because they have to. And if you um, believe in new methods of analysis and you talk about big data analytics and computers like IBM's uh, Watson, then the big data analytics need data, and they need good data. The better the data, the better the insight. And we would have been creating a large amount of data in one place, which essentially deals with identifying people who are lying much more easily because they would rapidly appear as outliers or outliers. Um, and uh, we would be demonstrating reproducibility across sites. This is not randomized at the moment. And in a sense, um, these are parallel events to randomization because there are some things which are going to be big enough questions that require randomization. Do you need to have an operation for prostate cancer or not? And there are others, particularly in um, heterogeneous small populations like the one I work in, where that is too complicated and too expensive and you have to collect the data and then see what the patterns emerge. This is when it's better. It's not entirely new because for more than a decade people have been talking about how you need to have good data integrity. Um, the National Academy of Sciences published a really good paper about this in 2009. Uh, we are responsible for our integrity. The data, methods and the information associated with it should be publicly accessible. Uh, others ought to be able to find it and study it. Now, our peers in other parts of science do it much better. There are well-known uh, repositories of open data from, uh, from research in physics, astrophysics, geology, mathematics, statistics, where the journals demand that the raw data are placed somewhere so other people can play with them. And in fact, physics love it when... Um, they discover that some, there might have been a fault in their equation. It's kind of an intellectual challenge to go back and play with it until you identify what it is. They love that criticism. Why don't we? These repositories are well established right through into um, distribution of stars throughout the world, throughout the universe. Um, so I thought it would be interesting to find out what happened to surgery in these data. Where is the place I put my surgical data? Well, I went to the NIH website, went to the EU website, went to some of the British websites. I couldn't find any. There's nowhere to park my surgical data. No structure exists at the moment. Um, I've tried it out, discussed this with other people who also can't find it. It's not just me. Roy Kahn, um, I met recently in Lisbon, and it's been bothering him for the same period of time. He's proposed a slightly different solution. That actually, you do write your paper and you do submit it in the usual way, but you do it six months in advance of its publication. So it goes out to become public for everybody to play with, including the raw data. And then only if it gets through those hurdles will the edit a journal accept it. So it's not peer review, it's public review. And Ben Goldacre uh, argues the same thing for uh, all trials that Clinical trial data should be public, all the data, including the stuff um, that uh, drug companies currently keep si silent as part of clinical trials. The raw data are critically important for us to be able to provide mutual criticism. We need, for people like me who are ambitious, to be able to find a way that facilitates my career progression on collaboration, transparency, and the quality of data and methods I'm associated with, and not the weight of my CV. 
definitely not that. I have to own up to having published some really bad papers. They got through all of these hurdles, and I'm not proud of them. Because the methods weren't good enough, and I just had to publish them to get my next job. I believe that we should be completely transparent about the scientific data that we collect. I believe that we can do that in the modern era of computers, and I believe that there are scientists out there who will um, analyse the data much more effectively than I can. I also believe that the patients that we operate on will join us in this experiment if we're honest with them about what we're doing. I have, as I said, yet to meet a patient who refuses to share their data if they feel that the need for uh, that is altruistic. In other words, it's a good research protocol. I'm not giving it away to an insurance company. I'm not giving it away uh, to some commercial organisation. I'm giving it away for the public good. This is William Douglas, who's a great American juror, um, Supreme Court Justice, who was talking about the importance of transparency in the law and he either made this quote or quoted it from an earlier Supreme Justice, which is that sunlight is the best disinfectant. I think the time has come for us to really understand what transparency of data is, is all about and trust ourselves and the public to bring those data into an environment, secure environment, but public, where everybody can play with their data and make better conclusions. That way, we cannot fool each other or ourselves, nor be fooled by people like Paolo Macchiarini and his like. Thank you very much indeed, and a special thank you to all of these people who've contributed to some of these ideas. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.